Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Helen Langdon returns to the program. Langdon is the author of Salvatore Rosa, Paint and Performance, a new biography of the Renaissance painter and actor. Langdon's book explains Rosa's thirst for fame, his philosophical pursuits and how they melded with his painting, his acting career, and the ways in which his desire to be a celebrity often interfered with his ability to accomplish his career goals. It's a fun, exciting, zippy read. The book was published by Reaction and is distributed in the U.S. by University of Chicago Press. IndieBound and Amazon each offer it for $25, which is a total steal. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, the Chinese exclusion era in photographs. But first, Helen Langdon, after the break. On view at the Getty Center through October 28th, the fascinating new exhibition Working Together, the Photographers of the Kamoingi Workshop, depicts black life during the 1960s and 1970s through an artistic lens. The photographs of the Kamoingi Workshop capture unique portraits of music legends like Miles Davis, Grace Jones, and Mahalia Jackson, moments in the civil rights movement, and artful abstractions often printed in dark tones that evoke the unsettling era in which they were made. Join Getty for the first major retrospective presenting the work of a collaborative chapter of American photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash Leandro Ehrlich. And we're back. Helen Langdon, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a great pleasure. We're going to mostly talk about Salvatore Rosa the painter because, well, that's how his fame and import has most extended to us today. But Rosa had ambitions and interests and fantasies and delusions of grandeur and all kinds of things that went way beyond painting. So maybe a good place to start with is, was the scope and scale of Rosa's ambition for himself and his career? Well, Rosa was, a, I think, one of the most sort of brilliantly inventive artists of the Italian 17th century. And he's trained as a painter and starts his career as a painter. But then he decides he can get much greater fame by becoming an actor. So he starts his career as an actor quite early on, you know, in his 20s. And he becomes really a famous actor working in informal groups of actors. And he's known for popularising some of the most famous Neapolitan masks of the Commedia dell'arte, like Pascariello, Coviello. And Rosa was brilliantly gifted actor, sort of witty, funny, good at improvisation, full of jokes and humour. So that was one string to his bow. And the next one is Rosa was a poet, and he starts writing satire in his 20s, and he models himself on the ancient Roman satirist, Juvenal, and to a lesser extent, Horace. And he really wants to be the most famous poet of the time. So he sees himself and portrays himself in his satires as the stern moral mentor of his age. And his satires are an astonishing mix of proverbs, aphorisms, jokes in dialect, lengthy self-portraits of Rosa the Stoic, the moral mentor. 
And it's important to realise that Rosa isn't just an artist who happens to paint some poetry. He is the most distinguished satirical poet working in Italy in the entire 17th century. So he's a very significant poet. Um, he's not just like, say, Bronzino, who wrote a bit of poetry. He's a famous poet, you know, studied as much for his poetry as for his paintings. But Rosa also wanted to be seen as a kind of philosophical artist. And he has massive ambitions to be recognised as the great philosopher painter of the 17th century. And here I think he's very much vying with Poussin. And he wants to surpass Poussin as the most serious and intellectual and philosophical artist of his time. So Rosa has vast ambitions. He says somewhere, I intend to be the first man of my age. And, you know, he's always aspiring to global grandeur. And to quite a large extent, he makes it, though he never thinks he does. But he does, really. He becomes very <laughs> famous. <laughs> yes, his, his, his constant obsession with not having done that comes ringing through the book. It's really like feel, part of the fun. You feel like <laughs> saying to him, look here, you made it, you know. <laughs> But yes. he thinks he didn't. It's like practically every chapter of the book ends with him thinking he hasn't made it and coming something <laughs> new to do and try. It, 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 yeah. is, it you know, kind of reads like a letter in that way. So do all of these varied interests and disciplines and pursuits end up living in and informing his painting? Yes, I think they really do, actually. I mean, Rosa the actor, he paints a astonishing self-portrait of himself as an actor, Rosa's Pascariello, and he's looking out of the painting at the world beneath him, you know, wanting to criticise the passerby and tell them a few jokes. So Rosa the actor, I think, is constantly present. And of course, all his paintings have a theatrical element. He's very interested in gesture, expression, in setting a stage and showing a group of figures all reacting very clearly and excitedly one to the other. So I think Rosa the actor is quite important. Rosa the satirist, I think, does inform his paintings a lot. Now, he's a juvenilian satirist in that he's constantly criticising the moral decay and corruption of the age in which he lives in the harshest and blackest of terms. And these themes run through his paintings as well. Now, a lot of his paintings are about the sort of corruption of the times, the horror of warfare, the possibilities of revolution that are about to engulf the 17th century political world. And secondly, the satires inform the paintings in that throughout the satires, he sets in opposition to modern corruption and decay. He sets the heroic lost world of the philosophers of antiquity. So you get this kind of backdrop saying, oh no, it's terrible now, but there was a time when these great men like Diogenes, Crates, Socrates, Plato, ruled the world. And in Rosa's satires, they seem still to live and talk and carry on as they did in ancient times. So you've got both the positive and the negative in the satires, and both of these run through his paintings as well. I think his paintings of, of everything you just described have kind of more movement and sense of action in them than, say, Poussin or, or Claude, which is part of why they're great fun. Rosa's project a bit. Let's go back to the beginning of his life. He's born early in the 17th century in a small town on the Bay of Naples. And both the circumstances of his birth and the way the Italian peninsula is kind of set up as a series of city-states will be important in his career. He 
not one for holding still, shall we say. Could you maybe set the scene of both the importance of Rosa being born in a little town above the Bay of Naples, a fairly humble town, the circumstances of his birth and the Italian world in which he begins to work? Yes, Rosa is born in Arenella, which, as you say, is just outside Naples. And he's born really to a very poor family. And his father is some kind of land surveyor, a minor architect, but not at all well off. But he's also born into a family of painters. His grandfather was a painter and his uncle was a painter. So he comes from a family of very minor painters, you know, who probably made cheap devotional images and this kind of thing. So he does come from an artistic background. And they also saw very early on that Rosa was exceptional and they tried to push their son as hard as they can. And one of the things that always makes me laugh is that they wanted him to be a lawyer. They thought he could earn a lot of money and get them out of poverty, which, you know, is quite amusing, really. But the lucky thing that happened to Rosa is that his family, his father dies young and the family move into Naples and he's taken over really to be brought up by his grandfather and he gets sent to school and I think that was an astonishing bit of luck for Rosa because he's sent to a school that had been set up in Naples by San Giuseppe Calasanzio who had pioneered the concept of free education for the sons of the poor and he set up this series of free schools in Naples and Rosa and his brother both went to school and you know, they would have learned some Latin, they would have had a sort of the glimmers of a classical education, even though the schools were incredibly crowded and full of the sons of fishermen who were just trying to learn how to do their accounts. But nonetheless, Rosa did get a bit of an education in Naples. And I think that was extremely important. And San Giuseppe took Rosa up. You know, he was keen on Rosa and on his brother. And there's a very touching letter when he tells his mother that he's going to tell Rosa to behave better and write a letter to him and let her know how he's getting on. So they're obviously on quite friendly terms. And I think he must have been a bit of a talent spotter, really, and pushed Rosa towards getting himself into a career. Rosa enters the novitiate for a bit, but it didn't really suit his temperament. And he decides quite early on to become a painter instead. Now, Rosa in Naples... Naples has this kind of double side to it. It's partly the most beautiful city in the world. You know, it's already celebrated throughout Europe, the extraordinary paradisal beauty of the Bay of Naples. And grand tourists are just beginning to come there. So you've got this enchantingly beautiful Arcadian city. But you've also got the volcano. You've got the Spanish viceroys who are tyrannical, who are pressing all the young men into their armies who are really milking Naples for money, taxes. It's a really oppressive regime. And in Rosa's very early paintings, you can feel the kind of dejection and misery of the poor. So he's got this double kind of background to him, a wonderfully beautiful city. And Rosa always wrote throughout the rest of his life of the beauty of the Bay of Naples and how he wanted to go back there and see how lovely the landscape was. And his first paintings are little landscapes of the Bay of Naples. But secondly, you've got this dark black side. And I think all the way through Rosa's art, there is this undercurrent of violence that runs throughout his paintings, right the way through his career. Now he gets education at school, that's very good. And Rosa was already beginning to write poetry and thinking of being a poet. And then he enters the studio of the great Spanish artist Ribera, and a little later on of the Neapolitan painter, Aniello Falcone, who is a 
battle painter. So he's really lucky in that he gets into two incredibly productive, interesting, revolutionary artist studios. And that's where he launches his Neapolitan career. And in many ways, he never leaves Ribera. No, he doesn't. I mean, I think that Rosa, all the way through his life, whatever he paints, you can tell that this is a Neapolitan painter. I think what he took from Ribera, who he seems to have charmed by his playing of the lute, incidentally, he obviously has this wonderful charisma and charm from very early on in his career. What he takes from Ribera, really, is the chiaroscuro, and these sort of wonderful patterns of light and dark that fill Ribera's paintings and Rosa's. Secondly, he takes from Ribera the interest in expression, in dramatic gestures, very strong physiognomies, extraordinarily interesting types of Neapolitans whom Ribera and Rosa had seen in the back streets of Naples. And he takes more specialised things too, like Ribera's interest in philosopher paintings, which Ribera's studio are producing by the dozen. Rosa is to take these paintings and turn them into something just a little bit different, but always related to Ribera. And they're paintings that show the ancient philosophers as beggars, as tattered and bedraggled figures, but full of life and vivacity and humour. They're really in the picaresque tradition. And secondly, of course, he takes horror. I mean, Ribera painted some of the most grisly, horrific, terrifying paintings of the Italian 17th century. And Rosa competes with these. You know, he's interested in horror, violence, in shock. And this is a very Neapolitan aesthetic of beauty combined with horror that Rosa picks up in Ribera's studio. We will have philosopher paintings by both on the show page on manpodcast.com. Those philosopher paintings by both Ribera and Rosa are just immensely influential. I mean, I think, you know, Manet continuing the tradition of them into French painting in the 19th century. And I think there are ways in which that tradition continues, say, in German painting in the 20th. When Rosa is in his mid-20s, he makes his first, and I guess shortest, trip to Rome. Why does he go and what does he absorb there? Well, I think Rosa partly goes to Rome simply because he wants to be at the centre of the world stage. You know, and for a Neapolitan artist, you would have to go to Rome and have a look at ancient Rome and everything that made Rome so famous. But there's also a slight question that Rosa was going because he thought he wasn't, this is very early on in Rosa's career, he thinks he's not quite successful enough. And he thought he was competing with a Neapolitan artist called Domenico Gargiulo, who is getting more important commissions than Rosa for painting of landscapes. So I think he partly goes to escape that kind of competition. But I think probably he went, you know, as you or I would go as a sightseer, wanting to know what's going on, looking for new worlds to conquer. Is this when he discovers Bernini? Yes. Well, the, the years between 1635 and 40 are very, very confused exactly where Rosa was at that time. So he's shuttling back and forth. So he discovers Bernini a little towards the end of the... I mean, he would have been aware of Bernini instantly, but he gets into competition with Bernini at the end of the 1630s when Rosa's just got this brilliant idea of making his name as an actor. And of course, Bernini also has a very big name as an actor in Rome in the 1630s. And like Rosa, he's playing, playing Neapolitan types. Now, Bernini was famous as Coviello, who is a character from the Commedia dell'arte, and so is Rosa. So I think you get this young, totally unknown, 
artist turning up in Rome, having a look at his Neapolitan compatriot and thinking, I can do better. And he has a go at sort of trying to outact Bernini. I mean, it's an astonishing bit of, I was going to say arrogance, but that's a bit unkind, really. It's an astonishing bit of confidence and aggressiveness at wanting to succeed in the world. So he tries to compete with Bernini as an actor in the late 1630s. In the book, it comes across as a certain kind of reasonably warranted hubris. Yes, (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) So Bernini doesn't stay in Rome for long on this this first trip. The, The first place he really ends up for an extended period after leaving Naples is Florence, which he makes his home for about a decade. How does Florence inform the poet, painter, philosopher, everything, (laughs) uh, actor that Rosa wants to be? I think he may have gone to Florence because, you know, he got into such trouble for competing with Bernini. So he goes off to Florence where he becomes court painter to the Medici, which is quite an astonishing thing because he's still quite a young artist. And I think the decade in Florence is probably the happiest of Rosa's life. In an extraordinary way, he managed to take what he saw in um, in Florentine painting and blend it with what he had already as a Neapolitan. Now, first of all, the atmosphere in Florentine painting really suited Rosa because the artists working there like Fiorini, Giovanni de San Giovanni, They're very witty, irreverent, amusing artists, interesting in what Rosa would call pizzeria. And so they do fresco paintings that are full of humour and jokes. And I think Rosa very much responded to that. You know, he was always a witty artist. He was always astute. And he picks up a lot of the irreverent atmosphere of Florentine painting at that time. And I think the individual artists whose work he looked at were... Probably Lorenzo Lippi was his best friend, who was another artist who was famous for being funny, clever, improvisatory, full of jokes. And Rosa and Lippi became great friends. And Rosa takes from Lippi not only some stylistic qualities, but he was also very interested in Lippi as a poet. Lippi wrote a long, long poem called an epic, mock epic poem called the Malmantili Requistato, which is about witches. And Rosa was to paint a lot of witchcraft paintings in Florence in the 1640s. And I think he's partly influenced by Lippi. And the two of them got together and discussed how they could create bizarre motifs for their poem and for Rosa's painting. And they were both actors, they were both swordsmen. And the whole atmosphere of Florence, I think, very much appealed to Rosa. He also began to take part in Florence. He had already done this to a certain extent in Rome, but on a much bigger scale, Rosa takes part in the life of the literary academies in Florence. And he even founded his own academy called the Accademia dei Percossi, which was a literary academy and was a mixture of high churchmen, actors, poets, men from the world of public affairs, not painters, actually. There were very few, well, there are no painters recorded at the Percossi. And here Rosa picks up literary themes. He begins to explore Florentine philosophy. He gets very much absorbed in the world of the Florentine theatre. And the Pecossi were wonderful. I mean, they were partly funny, but every now and then they read learned discourses on the subjects of Rosa's paintings. So he dominates the literary world in Florence completely. 
only becomes quite quickly the most famous poet in Florence and dominates this world of very, very varied, irreverent, funny intellects. Do you have a favorite example of his blending of Florentine and Neapolitan painting during his time in Florence? I think possibly, I do actually. I think he did a um, very unusual philosophical allegory called Moral Philosophy. And this is really a Florentine type of painting because the Florentines in the 1640s are very interesting allegory in personification, in paintings of abstract concepts like poetry, philosophy, and all the rest of it. And Rosa takes some of these themes, philosophy, poetry, and turns them into this really fascinating allegorical painting. But when you look at this painting, it's also steeped in the art of Ribera. Now, it shows a young woman who personifies philosophy sitting in the pose of dejection, which Rosa takes from Dürer's print of melancholy with her hand on a skull and she's contemplating death. And this is very much a Ribera motif. You know, there are several Ribera paintings of figures, hermits, they're dejected figures contemplating mortality. And she's beside a figure who I think is probably Socrates, a full length philosopher with I think the head of Socrates, who is very much a Ribera type of philosopher. And then at the feet of this figure, and the philosopher is showing moral philosophy a mirror. And the conceit is, you know, through looking in the mirror, you know yourself. And this is, of course, is what Socrates said was the aim of philosophy, you know, know thyself. But this is a kind of Ribera philosopher with a Florentine allegorical figure. And then at the feet of moral philosophy, there's a snake eating Rose's signature on a bit of paper. And this again is a motif that Ribera had used in a famous painting of the drunken Silenus. So I think he's putting together here motifs from Ribera with a Florentine concept of allegory on abstract topics. And they're all in a kind of dark lunar landscape, which again is slightly Ribera-esque. So I think that painting is a kind of mixture of the two, but it's done at almost exactly the same time that Rosa did a really, really hideous painting of Prometheus having his liver pecked out. And this is a completely Ribera painting. It hasn't got a single touch of Florence about it. And I think there he was really saying, right, here am I, a Neapolitan painter in Florence. And you can all look out because this is what we Neapolitan painters can do. So I think he did side by side something that pays homage to Florentine allegory with something that is utterly Neapolitan and, and that would have given them a shock, you know. Well, it still gives you a shock if you go and look at the thing today. I mean, it's a sickening looking painting, actually. And it, mm. it exists or it's only in print? No, it exists. It exists. He, mm. he did two paintings of this theme. One he showed in Rome in 1638, which doesn't exist. There's only a print. That's what I'm thinking of. And a second one, which is in the Galleria Corsini in Rome now, but was the one he painted in Florence. You mentioned Rose's interest in philosophy in Florence. He begins to paint historical, philosophical-ish figures such as Diogenes, surely philosophical, and historical, semi-philosophical figures like Cincinnatus. Why do they interest him both as a painter and I guess as a non-painter? Well, I think the Diogenes painting, he becomes a court painter. He's taken up by Giancarlo de' Medici, who is the um, brother of the Grand Duke. 
and he wants Rosa to paint a series of paintings to decorate the Salone in his casino. And it's for that painting, that room, that Rosa paints Diogenes before Alexander and Cincinnatus. And if you remember the story of Diogenes, it's the story that Diogenes is this very, very witty, irreverent, really basically extremely rude early philosopher who scorns absolutely all social conventions. And Alexander... Sounds familiar. Says, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that is true. Alexander decides to go and see him, okay, and, and he says, can I do anything for you? And Diogenes says, yes, get out of the light. So it's a wonderful juxtaposition of the world of philosophy with the courtly world. And I think the reason that Giancarlo... And, and the needs of a painter, it must be said. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, actually, but that's absolutely right, actually. And Rosa paints this one as part of this program of paintings glorifying his cardinal patron. And I think the reason why he chooses this very rude philosopher is that the Medici prize themselves on being patrons of philosophers. So Giancarlo is showing himself as Alexander and he's got at his court this famous philosopher. And the same is true of Cincinnatus, who is, is brought back to fight the war and is then returns to his fields. So they're both paintings about the sort of humbleness of the Grand Duke. So those have got very precise reasons. The other two, Diogenes in the Philosopher's Wood and the Crates throwing his money into the sea, they're done for a Florentine courtier. And I think they're slightly different because I think Rosa by this stage is beginning to paint scenes from the lives of philosophers, which are new in painting. I mean, there've been masses of these portraits of philosophers, but the idea of scenes from the lives of philosophers are really quite new. And I think Rosa is painting those because the literary world is very, very interested in restoring these scenes. And the other thing about them is that they're quite funny. You know, Diogenes is throwing away his drinking bowl because he realises that you can get on in life without a drinking bowl. You can just use your hand. And Crates is throwing all his money into the sea. He's just chucking it into the sea. And all around him, people are scrabbling to pick this money up. So both these scenes are quite funny. And I think this is quite a good literary theme in Florentine poetry of the 1640s, you know, the humour of the antics of the ancient philosophers, which Rosa captures really perfectly. I mean, much more so than Poussin, who always makes his philosophers grave and stately and dignified. Whereas Rosa's are funny, as they are in ancient sources and as they are in contemporary literary sources. So I think he's picking up on a sort of mode for this kind of amusing scene from antiquity. You know, in these eight or nine years in Florence, to write about how he's doing a little bit of everything and everything's really different. There are these scenes of philosophers. There are battle scenes or a battle scene. There is landscape painting, which he becomes exceptional at. There is witchcraft. You know, he might have made any of these one thing primary interest. Instead, it seems really important to him to do everything. Why does he do so much different stuff? Why is that important to him? I think partly it's the demands of the, his patrons. You know, because the Medici are looking for battle paintings. They're very interested in battle paintings. And Rosa was a good battle painter. They're interested in philosophy paintings. But he's also trying to build up. I mean, Rosa hated being a court painter. He didn't want to paint for the court. He wanted to be free and insisted on having his own house. He wouldn't go and live in the court and mixing with his friends. So although he is a court painter, 
And he had all the gifts to be a good one. You know, he painted very fast. He was very amusing. People liked talking to him. He's quite learned. So he had everything going for him. But he wanted to be a philosopher painter outside the court and to paint for a series of learned friends, more interesting subjects that interested them and him. And I think the witchcraft paintings come into this. You know, I think he was wanting to paint subjects that were funny, that were amusing, and that interested his learned friends who met at the Academia dei Percossi. And he wanted to show off his variety. Now, the landscapes, of course, are what he really impressed the Florentines with. And I think there he saw that he was bringing to Florence a kind of landscape that they had never seen before. You know, he was bringing enchanted scenes of the Neapolitan coastline, which he seems to have painted in Florence. So, you know, he was miles away from the Neapolitan coastline by that time. But there were quite a few really beautiful scenes of rock arches and the sun setting on the sea. And these, I think, he again wanted to introduce to Florence the kind of magical world of Neapolitan art. And some of those amongst his loveliest paintings and contemporary descriptions, you know, make it clear that they were astonished by the effects of light and the beauty of the sea and water. Battle paintings, witches. He also paints quite a few fancy portraits in Florence. And I think, again, these were done because his painting is building up, showing off his skills to a fairly small group of learned, poetic friends, intellectuals. So he's got these two publics going, you know, the world of the court, but also the world of friendship, of people studying at the literary academies. And for them, he paints imaginary heads, which he often gives them of exotic figures from travels and this kind of thing. I mean, he is a very varied artist, actually. Super varied. I think you write in the book that one of Rosa's, I don't know, innovations might be too strong a word, but one of the things he brings to landscape painting is he plays wilderness and Arcadia off of each other. He, he brings them together often in single compositions. Do you have a favorite example and why is that important? I think when he's in Rome, he's painting in the 1630s. His landscapes are very much the Arcadian vision of Claude, actually, who is, of course, the dominant painter in landscape in the late 1630s. But when he gets to Florence, he spends a lot of time in the summers going to stay with friends in the rocky landscape around Volterra, which really is quite wild and magnificent. And it's full of strange geological formations that Rosa was very much attracted to. So he starts discovering in Volterra a new type of beauty, wild beauty, which he juxtaposes to the beauty of paintings of Claude. I mean, it's quite completely different. And it's a rocky beauty. And where his villa was, was where well, it wasn't his villa, it belonged to a friend of his. But he used to go and stay in a villa at Monte Ruffoli, which is very famous for geological formations. And the, some of the pictures of this area, I think, are you know, perfect examples of this kind of wild beauty. One I would quote would be the landscape with rock formations is at Holcomb Hall. There's a very strong rosa landscape of a rocky cliff formation. And I think in some of them, where he juxtaposes the two, you could see maybe the Cincinnatus, you've got a Claudian foreground, then you've got the rocky hills in the background where he's putting Arcadia against a more wild Arcadia. And the same is true of the philosopher's wood. And then he often too juxtaposes a rocky mountain landscape with a harbour scene. 
And there's a pair of those in the pity that are perhaps the most striking and best known examples of Rosa's juxtaposition of a sort of rocky wild landscape, the bridge, with a harbour scene that's full of the beauty of light on water and sort of grey tones, very, very attractive painting. And both of those are in Florence in the Palazzo Pitti. Rosa has a tremendous near decade in Florence, but returns to Rome in 1648. Why? Well, that's very interesting, actually, because he seems to have fallen out with the Medici court around yeah. about 1646, and nobody knows exactly why, because they were incredibly nice to him. I mean, he had a good salary. He didn't have to go and live at court. He could mix with his friends as much as he wanted. But Rosa felt all the time at the court that they didn't approve of him, not the Medici, but the courtiers. You know, he spent a lot of money on giving the courtiers wonderful meals, you know, filling them up with wine and the most delicate food. And Let me then jump in went, for just a second. He loved hosting these parties. And you yes, describe many of them in the book and, and kind of how he is as a host and how his style of hosting courtiers, artists, others is kind of different from the dominant mode and how much he just loved it. Yes, he did. He loved spending money on meals. And I think what he's trying to do is rise socially and the qualities of liberality, munificence, generosity are noble qualities to which Rosa aspired. And then at the Percossi, of course, he did these incredible banquets where he arranged for everything to be made of the same ingredient. So although your meal looked as if it was meat, veg, pasta, it wasn't actually, it was all pasta. And this is a kind of Florentine wit. You know, there are other examples of this kind of playing around with different kinds of food. So he does love being a host and he likes charming everybody. But he didn't get the response he liked. And the courtiers at the Medici court cut him in the street the next day. And Rosa writes poetry about this, saying, you know, whatever I do, they still ignore me. You know, I, I still can't get a real foothold in the aristocratic world. So I think... Partly he felt he wasn't appreciated. He must have had some row with the Medici that we don't know the details of. And there's a very interesting letter written from the um, early 1650s where a friend of Rosa said, you know, he's come to Rome because the Florentines used to taunt him that he would never succeed in a bigger arena. You know, they were saying to him, you get on well here because there's nobody here. This is just a province, but go to Rome and you won't get on. So he's partly rising to that challenge. I think he's also just wants to be in a bigger world, you know, entirely of his own accord. He wanted to shine. He got such big ambitions that he wanted to shine on the great stage of European art, which, of course, Rome was in the 17th century. And I think just possibly he goes when he goes because the Jubilee year is coming up. And of course, of 1650, that is. And of course, there's a lot of work for artists when there's a jubilee. So I think he was mainly perhaps hoping to profit from the jubilee year. He just wanted to be in the Caput Mundi. You know, he wanted to be the central person at the centre of the world. And of course, visitors from all over Europe would come to Rome for the jubilee year. And this is, you know, I'm probably overstating this or oversimplifying this, but 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 when... Rosa returns to Rome in 1648 and the years afterward is really, I guess, when his work begins to spread north into Europe. Yes, it is. He's already known in France, you know, astonishingly early, actually. I think, I think. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I read the book. I was, yeah. 
Well, I was surprised to find that out myself, actually, that somebody's written a very good book on Rosa's reputation in France. And I was really astonished that it was so early that he's known as a poet, not only as a painter either, but as a poet in the fairly early 1640s. And then he begins to get invitations, you know, to go and work at other European courts. So his name is spreading outside Italy quite rapidly. What is he interested in painting in Rome in this, you know, at the end of the 1640s and in the 1650s that's different from what he was doing before? Well, when he gets to Rome, here he is, this artist who's done very well in Florence, but, you know, he wants to do better. And he thinks, wow, you know, here I am on the world stage and I've got to stun the public completely and get everybody to talk about me. And he starts off by painting pictures that are big. I mean, scale becomes very important. He paints pictures that are bigger than what he'd been painting in Florence. And two of these, the Democritus and the Diogenes now in Copenhagen, are the two paintings with which he makes his debut into Rome. Secondly, I think he becomes really keen to compete with Poussin. So he starts painting bigger, more classical scenes from ancient history, such as the martyrdom of Attilius Regulus, which is a very Poussin-type painting. So his art becomes more classical, darker, graver, grander than it had been in Florence. What do we know of Rosa's personal attempts to engage with painters of the sort you just mentioned? Well, Poussin is a very interesting example, actually, because there is a a drawing of some heads that Rosa did in the late 1630s, which is quite early, when he's first in Rome. And this has got an inscription on it that suggests that Rosa gave this painting to Poussin. And it's a study of expression, and it's painted exactly the time that Poussin is painting the Israelites seeking the manor. So I think that, which is a classic study of expression and gesture. And I think Rosa is trying to capture Poussin's attention even as early as the late 1630s, which I've always found quite fascinating because Poussin then disappears from the story really through the 1640s. But when you get to the 1650s, he never mentions Poussin by name until Poussin is dying. And then there's a letter when Rosa says, Monsieur Poussin is dying. But we have very many letters from Rosa, very, very many, but none of them ever mention, except for this one reference to Poussin, Claude or Poussin, almost no other artist, actually. But nonetheless, his style becomes Poussin-esque in the early 1650s. I think particularly Attilius Regulus is painted on the kind of scale of Poussin paintings. It's a study in expression and gesture. The figures are all lined up parallel to the picture plane story of that letter is one of the really fun stories in the book. (laughs) Rosa, as we've noted a few times with great delight, always had trouble staying within the bounds of what was considered genteel behavior, shall we say? And so examples of that aren't just within his personal life and comportment, but they're within his painting too. And a great, if not the classic example of that is a picture he made at the end of the 1650s in Rome called Allegory of Fortune. Why did he paint it? What does it show? And what is the spectacular mess it made for him? (laughs) It did make a spectacular mess. (laughs) The Allegory of Fortune is one of Rose's really most brilliant and inventive, but also strange and 
incredibly rash paintings. You know, it's astonishing to wonder how an earthy thought of could have got away with it. Now, all through the 1650s, Rosa had been involved in a series of really horrifically harsh and bitter literary controversies. Now, he annoyed the literary establishment in Rome by boasting, by showing off, by criticising them. And they got fed up of him. They wanted to expel him from some of the literary academies. And they even spread a rumour that Rosa hadn't painted his satires, you know, that his friend Ricciardi had painted them or that he'd stolen them from a priest who was now dead. And, and these, these controversies are very, very harsh. You know, people begin to write satires about Rosa, suggesting that he should be executed. So the venomous, horrible phase of Romus's life in the early 1650s. And I think towards the end of the 1650s, you know, he's fed up with this. He feels persecuted by fortune. He's kind of becomes an outcast in his own eyes and a misanthrope. And the tone of his satires becomes black as black. You know, they're full of really overwhelming vision of apocalyptic disaster, of a sort of black world that is overrun by corruption. So I think that's partly the context that one needs to see the fortune in, that he feels he's been rejected, that the whole world is a mass of corruption, ordure, filth, and they're very, very pessimistic years. And at the end of this period, he decides he's going to get his revenge on all these people by painting the fortune. Now, what the fortune shows is fortune personified as a young and very glamorous blonde sitting on a globe, a glass globe to symbolize inconstancy, and her hair is streaming in the wind. And she is spilling out of a very long cornucopia that is kind of twisting in her hands, a kind of shower of all the riches of the world, you know, jewels, fruits, crowns, scepters, symbols of power and autocracy. And she's spilling these onto a crowd of the most hideous bovine animals that you can imagine. And Rosa was a very good animal painter, and I think he partly wanted to have a chance to show his skills. So these are a sort of a, an, a pig who is sniffing at pearls in the foreground of the painting, an ox, a sheep, a goat, and other kind of low-life animals. And she's pouring all the riches of the world straight onto the heads of this crowd of unlovely animals. One of the most striking things is a kind of bishop's cloak, a red scarlet bishop's cloak that falls on the back of a, a sheep. So he's satirising here how fortune only favours the unworthy, that the world is upside down, it's corrupt. Only the unworthy get the power, riches, glamour, and that people like him, and he includes his signature in the foreground of the painting and a rose that symbolises his character, that only people like him suffer from having nothing. And I think this is... You know, very witty painting because he turns fortune upside down because normally fortune is blind and she's flying above in the air, like in Guido Reni's painting of fortune, sort of tossing her gifts onto the world. Whereas Rosa's fortune is not blind. She's looking very, very purposefully at these horrible animals and she's very deliberately spilling her cornucopia right onto them. So you can't mistake what the painting is about at all. And it's a common conceit in 17th century poetry, you know, the world is upside down, only the monkey gets the diadem, you know, only the most 
disgraced of humanity wins any reward. So the idea is perfectly simple. You know, it's not a complex painting at all, but nobody had painted anything like this before. And it must have been a most terrific shock, I think, when Rosa displayed it in public, which he does himself um, admit wasn't perhaps a very sensible idea. Two things about the picture. It's at the Getty in Los Angeles, one of the great roses in the United States. And you know it better than I do, but it seems to me, so the upper 90% of the painting is painted as if we are looking up at the action. The, the one part of the painting that the viewer seems to be at eye level with is the center bottom foreground, and that's the pig snout. As if to say, we, the viewer, are on par with and doing what the pig is doing, sniffing the pearls. I think that's right, actually. Yes. um, No, it's really, it's very confrontational. Yeah. As we we tape this, the painting is not up at the Getty, but by the time this airs in a week or three, perhaps it will be. Either either way, we'll have an image, of course, on manpodcast.com. So in the the 1660s, Rosa's in Rome. His career is entering its third decade. He's one of the three or four most celebrated painters in Rome. And, you know, he's not resting on this success, but he's expanding the subjects that interest him once again. And science and scientific investigation comes into the work. Why and how so? Well, I think um, what happens in Rosa, all through his career, had always had close connections with the scientific world. You know, in Florence, he'd known some extremely famous Galilean scientists who really valued him. He was a friend with the evangelista Torricelli, who invented the barometer and who left Rose with gift in his will. So he got on extremely well with that circle of Galilean scientists. But of course, you know, Galileo was in trouble. His voice went silent for some time. And I think when it gets to the 1660s, Rosa again moves into and enters the scientific world with real panache. And I think this is partly because new strains of thought and feeling are entering the scientific world itself. You know, the voice of Galileo had long been silent, but suddenly it becomes easier to explore new themes. And the circles that Rosa responds to particularly are the circles around the Jesuit scientist, Jesuit scientists, Athanasius Kircher and Daniele Bartoli. And both of these are very big names in Rome. And Kircher is the most wonderful character. You know, he's a kind of, he refers to himself as a magician. And Kircher was interested in the science of Galileo, but he's also interested in a lot of magic, mystery. He writes wonderful volumes of popular science with stories about dragons, monsters, underground caves. And he had a museum in Rome, which was full of bizarre experiments, you know, there's a sort of globe with Christ being resurrected from the water. There's lots of experiments with sound and colour. And he has a little image, moving image, of Archytas of Tarentum, who created a artificial dove flying round on a globe. And so Reza would have gone to this museum and seen all these strange experiments and read these wonderful books of popular science, which really mix up in a most astonishing way the world of Galileo with the medieval world of mystery, of bestiaries, of hieroglyphics. And Kirk is very interested in ancient philosophy, you know, pre-Socratic philosophy. So I think what Rosa does at this stage, which I think is fascinating, he's very keen to paint subjects that have never before been painted. You know, he's passionately interested in novita, but, you know, to be popular, these paintings have to have a meaning. 
And to me, where he's really clever and a real showman and wonderfully gifted at putting himself center stage, is that he picks up from the world of Kierke, of Daniele Bartoli, this new scientific world of the 1660s with its interest in magic and monsters and experiment of different strange kinds. And so Rosa introduced a whole new range. He stops being interested in satirical philosophers. You know, he's not so interested anymore in um, philosophers who are just telling you to behave better. And he's much more interested in the pre-Socratics, you know, the very earliest philosophers who are interested in this, what Rosa himself calls the secrets of nature. So it's a turning point in his representations of philosophers in the 1660s. I think, you know, inspired by Kierke, Bartoli, and other writers of the 1660s. Rosa's last major painting is a martyrdom picture, and it was a particular triumph. Who and what did Rosa address with it, and why did he consider it such a success? Why was it such a success? Well, Rosa, all through his career, I mean, Rosa's, I mean, it's it's slightly tragic, really, because all through his career, Rosa's painting these, you know, wonderfully interesting, varied, astonishing subjects. But what he wants, above all other things, is to paint altarpieces in the churches of Rome. And he even paints a series of altarpieces for free for the Church of Santa Maria in Montesanto. But nobody really wants Rosa's altarpieces until suddenly, at the end of the 1660s, he gets commissioned to paint the Martin of St. Cosmas and Damien for the Church of San Giovanni dei Fiorentini, where it still is. And I think Rosa was thrilled to bits to get this commission. And it's interesting to me that the church is Florentine. It's the San Giovanni dei Fiorentini. The patron was Florentine. And I think the Florentines were always slightly more accepting of Rosa's ambitions than the Romans became. So he paints the martyrdom of Cosmos and Damien. And the main point of this painting is the figure in the foreground who is naked and is rushing straight out of the painting. You know, the saints are in the background on their pier, on their pyre, sorry. And in the foreground, the executioners are rushing forward out of the painting. And this figure that is rushing forward is naked. And he's also very obviously based on the Christ in Michelangelo's Last Judgment. So I think Reza is here saying, you know, here I can, I can paint a nude for a church in Rome and I can vie with Michelangelo. And he was very, really happy to get this commission. In fact, I'm not sure how much of a success this painting was, really. Rosa Passeri, who is Rosa's biographer, was extremely embarrassed to hear Rosa going around the streets of Rome saying, I have done better than Michelangelo. Come down from the skies, Michelangelo. Do better if you can, but I doubt it. And he was showing off with groups of performers around him. But I'm not sure, really. I mean, the painting's not bad, but I mean, it's not wonderful. And I don't think really that it would have received all that much acclaim in Rome. But Rosa was thrilled to bits to have the opportunity. And he got well paid for it and nearly was pleased about it. Rosa dies in in 1673. And like many an Italian painter, he has gone in and out of fashion. Maybe a good way to wrap up is by maybe talking a little bit about how Rosa's valued artists and historians has risen and fallen over the years. It seems to me like he's kind of 
certainly within the American context, he ends up being really important. I mean, Reza's reputation was high when he died. I mean, he was one of the most important painters in Rome. But I think the turning point really is that in the next century, Rosa becomes very, very famous, above all in England. I mean, his, a lot of his paintings come in England, a lot of the major figure paintings are in England, the Democritus, the Diogenes, the Belisarius, the Caius Marius on the ruins, Catiline. Now, all the really great figure paintings turn up in England. And he's really idolised by English artists and writers from the late years of the 18th century. But then there's another huge turning point also in England when Lady Morgan writes his biography in 1824. And Lady Morgan spreads around these myths that she didn't actually invent. She picked them up from Italian biographers, but she it is who makes them popular. And these are that Rosa in his youth had wandered with the bandits in the hills of the Abruzzi and that he'd been taken prisoner there. And Rosa suddenly becomes transformed into a freedom fighter. And of course, we're in the years leading up to the French Revolution and the idea of being a freedom fighter is very much in the air. And Rosa really is famous through the years of Romanticism, partly due to the wonderful, I think, prose of Lady Morgan, who really sells him as this extraordinary, dashing, romantic, vivid figure. And he becomes famous in France because the Saul and the Witch of Endor go to France and there's some very important paintings in the Louvre. And in Germany, there were painters specialising in landscapes with bandits that Rosa had introduced into Italian art. Now in England, I think this is not true of the United States, but in England, his reputation falls with Ruskin. You know, Ruskin can't abide Rosa because he says his landscapes are not naturalistic. He doesn't ever look at nature. And these are rubbish paintings that betray the whole idea of being a landscape painter. But Ruskin is also very interesting because he does respond to the sort of blackness of some of Rosa's paintings. And he writes this extraordinary piece about how Rosa was the last painter with a soul in European art. And it's quite interesting. Rosa, you know, Ruskin does have a quite complicated view of Rosa as an artist, even though it's really he who debunks him and causes his reputation to fall. And in England, it's never really recovered, actually, although we have had in England the two monographic exhibitions of Rosa's art, one in 1973 and the other in 2010. And these are, you know, the two big exhibitions of Rosa as a painter. You quote Ruskin a good bit in the book, and that was really interesting to me because Ruskin is an American landscape painters as early as, you know, at least as early as the mid-1850s, 18, mid early to mid-1850s. And I think of Rosa as being of enormous import to American painters, you know, Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, especially early Frederick Church. And yet it's kind of amazing to me that, that there has never been either a, at least that I recall, a huge Rosa show retrospective type scale, or even a Rosa and American painting show, which I think would reveal him, I'm pretty sure would reveal him as, yeah, especially his interest in landscape as being foundational here. Yes, no, it would be a fascinating thing to do, actually. I think in the um, 73 exhibition, there were, unless I've misremembered, but I think there were, at least was, at least one painting by Thomas Cole. There was a kind of nod to American landscape painting. Helen Langdon, thanks very much.
Well, thank you. Behold the dynamic, daring, and diverse works from the pioneering artist Linda Benglis. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents recent sculptures in media ranging from traditional bronze to decorative glitter that trace Benglis's career interests in surface, color, and scale. Visit the exhibition through September 18th and learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Don't miss out on being the first to view a movement in every direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome back. Next up, Aaron Garcia joins me to discuss Chinese Pioneers, Power and Politics in Exclusion-Era Photographs, which is at the California Historical Society in San Francisco through August 13th. The exhibition offers a CHS collection-driven visual history of the social, political, and judicial disenfranchisement of Chinese Californians, as well as portrayals of Chinese agency and resilience all during the Chinese Exclusion Era. Aaron Garcia, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, thank you so much for having me. What was the Chinese exclusion era? And is it useful or not to think of it as having a beginning and an end? Well, I think of the Chinese exclusion era as beginning before the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act at a time when, especially in California, there was rising xenophobia. It kind of came to an apex in the 1870s, I would say. And... I consider the era to continue for the decades that followed the 1882 Exclusion Act. And I sort of bring my show anyway to a close around 1910 when some of the real structures of exclusion had been put in place. So it took a, a few decades for the infrastructure of border control to kind of catch up with the law. But actually, the law continued for several more decades after that, which my show doesn't cover. So that's generally how I've been defining the exclusion era. So your show includes print material that is sometimes, you know, kind of lumped together in a broad nebulous category called visual culture and photography, whole lots of photography. Did print culture and photography do the same work in the period? Did it do different work? I think it did different work. And I did include illustrated newspapers from the era to sort of set the stage for what happens with photography and to create a kind of contrast right from the start. So The Wasp, for example, was an illustrated newspaper published in San Francisco, and it contained very derogatory imagery of Chinese people in, as I say, the exclusion era, especially in the 1870s and into the 1880s. And so I use that as a kind of jumping off place to really focus on how photography represented Chinese people in very different ways. There were, there were sort of distinct ways that photography, that Chinese people either used photography or that artists and others used photography to represent Chinese people. I 
can't help but asking, was the wasp named for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or the bug? I think it's named for the bug. <laughs> it was a satirical paper, but I'm not actually sure. It, I'm pretty sure it's the bug. It was named for the bug. It's a sa satirical, or it was a satirical newspaper, and it, you know, it, it sort of lambasted everyone. But the Chinese were a, a common subject, and they were represented in a couple of distinct ways. I think in the wasp, and and there were other, you know, print illustrated newspapers and media that that also uh, presented Chinese people in kind of grotesque and, and awful ways. But the wasp was, you know, pretty, pretty consistent. Well, let's start with print culture then with lithographs and, and newspapers, book illustration and the like. Are they a primary way in which anti-Chinese and anti-Chinese American visual tropes were introduced into California culture? Yes, I think they both reflected the, you know, the the tropes and the ideas that people that were circulating among people in California, and also promoted those those ideas. And I think, I think of, you know, I notice at least two different ways that Chinese people were represented in print media. On the one hand, you see these images of Chinese people as kind of these monstrous, almost zombie-like characters with kind of gaunt features and you know, looking very sort of brutish, but passive, sort of dead in the eyes and expressionless. And this, in my mind, really aligns with this view of Chinese migrant workers as a class of people who could be enslaved by monopolistic corporations and thereby undercut the livelihoods of white Americans. And then there's this other characterization or, or caricature of Chinese people in print media as cunning and devious and, you know, they have kind of smiling and maybe have long fingernails. And, and this kind of aligns with another view of Chinese people in the era as successful but deceitful and purposefully undercutting American workers. And so while those two different views are in contrast with each other, they both posed this kind of threat to American livelihoods and to American culture in a certain way. And in both configurations, the answer for many people was that the Chinese simply must go. Yeah, what you're describing, I think, is the construction of the mindful construction of otherhood. Right. I think you're right. And but I but what I find interesting is that it, it wasn't settled. There was no, you know, it, people couldn't quite put their finger on what it was about the Chinese that they didn't like. They just knew they did not like them and they were going to cast them in very negative ways through, you know, representations, visual representations, but also, you know, through language and, and just discourse at the time. And then there's photography. Yes. And then there's photography. So were photographers picking up on the tropes in print culture and extending them? Not really. What I found, at least in looking at the collections that we have, and our, our collections at California Historical Society are pretty extensive, is that photography was a burgeoning business or a big business in San Francisco at the time. There were a number of studios and there was a lot of competition and photographers were not particularly you know, interested in denying any clients access to their studios. So you know, if you were a paying customer, you could get your portrait taken at a San Francisco studio and business was business. And so what we have are quite a few carte visite photographs, you know, the popular format, this two and a half inch by four inch format 
that was popular in the 1870s, 60s and 70s. And we have quite a few pictures of Chinese sitters. And these pictures are just as dignified and, you know, kind of conventional as you would find for white sitters. So it's, it's you know, it's very typical to see the person being photographed sitting in a chair next to a table or maybe resting an arm on a column you know, with some kind of architectural elements in the background, but for the most part, very simple furnishings. And, you know, they're, they're lovely. They present the people being photographed, looking into the camera, either, you know, shoulders aligned with the plane of the photograph or at a kind of three-quarter angle. And they're, you know, they're dignified. And so I, I found that this is, you know, probably as close of an approximation to self-representation as we might see in the era. And, and they are, you know, they're obviously quite a contrast to the print media that was depicting these kind of monstrous Chinese people. And, and these are often, but not always, white-owned and white-run studios. For the most part, they're white-owned and white-run. They often, white-owned studios often did employ Chinese workers and then we know that there were at least 16 American Chinese-American portrait studios operating in San Francisco in, I'd say, the 1870s, I think. Which is an astonishing number. <laughs> it's really astonishing. And it's great to, to think about that because, you know, as we know, during kind of the years after the gold rush era, so many people came to California, you know, trying to strike it rich in the gold fields, right? But ended up becoming entrepreneurs and business people. And I think the same goes for Chinese people who came to California. They, and especially San Francisco, found other other occupations, you know, as merchants or, you know, supplying people who were going out to the big industrial mines at that time, and also as, you know, artists. And so we we know that we know that Chinese people staffed photo studios, and that in some cases, they were also the owners. So it's interesting to me that you note that, especially the studio representations that you cite and that are included in the show, and we'll have a number of examples on manpodcast.com, that they don't seem to take off from print culture. You know, and appreciating that you're building this presentation from your collection, which you know a billion times better than I do, as I've looked at other collections in California, as I've worked on the 19th century, I've noticed that visual tropes around non-studio-based Chinese representation seem to migrate out of 1860s white-made photographs of Native Americans, most especially Carlton Watkins, but also Moybridge too, into 1870s and after photographs of Chinese Californians made by you know, the big studios, Houseworth, Lawrence and Houseworth, and so on. These pictures, both of Native Americans in the 1860s and of Chinese Californians in the 1870s and after, are often made from a distance. They're often blurry. They're often kind of vaguely surveillancey, in that they're catching people who are often turning away from the camera in the act of doing something we can't quite tell what they're doing, which is to say they're not posed, and there's no participation of the person being photographed. The photographs often emphasize filth or what would read to white audiences as filth, which is a really important point if one thinks about the work these pictures are doing from a genocide studies point of view. Long story short, you know, do you have any of those examples in, in, in your collection and do you see examples of those tropes coming into photographs of Chinese Americans? 
you're right. There, there are photographs like that in our collection. They're not as grotesque as the imagery that you see in print media. But yes, they do show indolence and possibly, you know, vice, like smoking pipes or other kinds of vice. We do have pictures like that. They're, but they're not as grotesque as the imagery in the in print media at the time. And of course, they're not because those <laughs> images were, you know, e- extremely exaggerated. So I, we do have picture street photography sort of pictures, what, you know, what would we consider kind of survey photography, or now we would maybe call it street photography. But at the time, it was sort of more in the vein of, you know, survey or big views, and they're kind of pulled back. And you do see people in the alleys in Chinatown and things like that. But even and but even those pictures, you know, are many of them are really like vegetable peddlers or people selling fish or frying fish on the street. You know, they're not. I mean, there are some pictures of vice, and we and we will see pictures of vice. You know, especially a little bit later. It's an area that, to the best of my knowledge, photography historians have not spent a ton of time on. Someday in the future, maybe. Your exhibition also includes pictures not only of Chinese people, but Chinese neighborhoods, I think beginning in around the 1870s and then continuing into, as you noted earlier, into the 20th century. What does photography of Chinese neighborhoods look like and does it change in the course of that generation or two? I think there's a big change in, at the same time that Chinese people were being photographed in the studios, there there were photographers going out and photographing what essentially became Chinatown in San Francisco and and in other parts of California too. And we do see a change in the way that this genre, if you will, looks. So after exclusion, street photography takes on, for, for some, a kind of more artistic bent. Pictorialism. Right, And we see a kind of cosmopolitan elite that has a very different view of the Chinese. So we see people like Arnold Gentha going into Chinatown. You know, Chinatown was right at the end of the district where many photographers had their studio. So it was right there. And so we have a lot of photographers going into Chinatown and and photographing the district. And then as the Exclusion Act sort of segregated and kind of in a way closed the borders of Chinatown so that Chinese people, it was less permeable. Chinese people were more, felt perhaps more protected by staying within the quarter. So then we, we have in a way less of a kind of sense that Chinese people are taking jobs away from white people and that they're kind of less of a threat to American society. And so we have kind of a cosmopolitan elite sort of thinking, wow, this is an interesting subject. You know, China is actually a cultivated place with a long history of traditions and culture. And here we have a kind of uh, a miniature China right within our midst. And so it became a kind of exotic and interesting place to take a camera and try to make what we would think of as art photography. And this was especially true for pictorialist photographers like Arnold Gentha, and also painters and other kinds of artists, but they used, you know, typically some of the kind of motifs of Asian art. I'm thinking of people like Laura Adams Armour, especially. Uh, you know what? I'm going to jump in real quick because there was a Laura Adams Armour picture I wanted to raise specifically, and that's a picture called The Old Regime, which I think does a lot of the work you're describing. So we'll have it on manpodcast.com, but it features 
kind of in the background, people what I presume are wearing traditional Chinese dress, and you know these are these are adults. And in the foreground are two young children, probably like seven to ten years old, and they're wearing Western wear, specifically suits, like like adults would wear only they're seven to ten years old. And and it's a picture that seems to suggest that assimilation is advancing as a white audience would prefer. Interesting. Yeah, it's and it's this kind of narrow format. And I think, yeah, I find, I think Laura Adams Armour is interesting because she does sort of allow us to see these boys in Western style clothing, whereas a lot of the photography, pictorialist photography, especially by Gentha, really casts Chinese people as part of old traditional culture, you know, and there's a seem, seeming desire to look at Chinatown as a place that is not part of modern San Francisco society. And I think Adam's armor is interesting because she is showing us this younger generation as though to suggest, okay, there's an old regime, but this newer generation is going to become part of, you know, American society. And I do think she's very interesting for that reason. The, the Genta that came to mind as you were saying that is a, is a picture from around 1898 called The Sword Dancer. Yes, it's a great picture. And uh, yes, again, sort of showing, highlighting um, something exotic and a very kind of traditional cultural practice and kind of casting that person as very separate from you know, the, the mainstream culture. I, I think the armor's pic, the, the Laura Adams armor picture makes a really nice contrast with Gentha's young aristocrats, where she shows two boys, where he shows two boys in traditional clothing. And he's obviously kind of dodged and burned the, the, the print that we have so that other figures, other Chinese figures who wear sort of more Western style hats, they still have sort of traditional Chinese clothing, but they they look a little bit more similar to, you know, men in Western dress. And they're sort of made very dark so that they almost fade into the background. And so he's really highlighted, you know, the the children that look not only richer because they're wearing the kind of very fancy clothes, but, and these are his young aristocrats, as the title suggests, but also they look like they come from China, like, you know, an old world sort of China. And I think that's, you know, the thing about Gentha, you know, while we're seeing these artists going into Chinatown and making these kind of beautiful pictures of Chinese people and, and not showing us kind of grotesque things and not trying to highlight, you know, the impoverished state of the district and things like that, we are also seeing, so that's kind of positive. But on the other hand, we're also seeing you know, we're not seeing them sort of overturn any of the kind of social hierarchies here. In a way, they're reinforcing these certain ideas about the separateness and the segregated nature of Chinese culture from American culture. So as the, as the years go on, as we move out of the 1880s and into the 1890s and after, you note that photography became a tool in the suppression, surveillance, and criminalization of Chinese residents. How did that work? And in what ways or forms did that work? So, as I said, there there was no infrastructure to enforce Chinese exclusion when the act was first put in place. And it took decades for the government to kind of create a centralized bureaucracy that 
look something like immigration and border control that we would recognize today. And one of the steps that they took was to create a certificate of residence that Chinese people were required to carry with them. And the law said that it had to have an identifying photograph. And so this is really the first example. You know, U.S. passports existed at this time, but it would be uh, a couple decades, I think, before passports were required to have a picture. And so this is really the first form of photo identification and a requirement to have that kind of identification with you. So we see these certificates of residence with a kind of, uh, you know, what we think of as a passport style photograph. And these these kind of mugshot type photographs, you know, just the face and shoulders were also used in other legal paperwork like affidavits and that, you know, to apply for citizenship, not citizenship, but to apply for residency you know, and other other legal paperwork. But we also see these kind of photographs, that probably the same photographs, being used by, you know, in unofficial forms of surveillance. So yes, and in our collection, we have this kind of incredible album by a man named John Mason, who was a town constable and later a justice of the peace in Downeyville, California. And he compiled this album using the kind of photographs that Chinese people would have needed for their residence papers. His son-in-law was actually a photographer, a man named D.D. Beatty, and it's likely that he got the photographs from his son-in-law. And in any case, he compiled this album essentially tracking all of the Chinese people in Sierra County. And this was not, this was not legally required. This was not something that towns or counties needed to do. This was apparently his, you know, sort of pet project. And he kept, you know, he kept their pictures in this album with their names and, you know, ages, identifying marks, and their, you know, their status. If they, if they left the county or went back to China, he would note that. In some cases, he noted dead. And he basically followed these people throughout their lives as they lived in Sierra County. So it's, you know, it's really kind of frightening, I think, when we think about keeping lists and tracking people and surveilling people and sort of vigilantes taking, you know, he was an official, but he was doing something that wasn't, you know, that was beyond required by his job. I wanted to wrap up with a couple of pictures at the end of the show of Angel Island, which was an immigration outpost, if you will. It's an island like more or less in the middle, I mean, like literally in the middle of San Francisco Bay. It's nowhere near as famous in American immigration history as Ellis Island in, uh, in, in New York Harbor for lots of reasons, some of them uh, revealing. What do these pictures show and what do they tell us about Angel Island and the Chinese experience of entering the U.S.? Yeah, so Angel Island was built specifically on an island to prevent people from communicating with, well, from, you know, to quarantine them, but also to, to prevent them from communicating with other people, other Asian people that were already in San Francisco who might be able to help them get through some of the bureaucratic hoops and, and gain residency. But the Angel Island was built in, you know, I think it opened in 1910. And so here again, it took a couple decades for the, for the structures of exclusion to be put in place. And so by 1910, you have this kind of orderly facility 
designed specifically to deal with the Chinese problem, but also the larger Asian problem, if you will. And we have this wonderful picture. I, I think it's such an incredible picture because it says so much. It's a picture of about, I'd say, 10 or 11 Asian women, probably Chinese, sitting in a an enclosure, a chain link fenced enclosure with long benches. And they are perhaps waiting to be processed. And with them are maybe five or six children. And then at the end of the of this enclosure is a is a white, you know, American looking woman who, you know, she wears sort of the the typical outfit of the progressive era with her dark jacket and white collar. And she's the only figure that looks into the camera. And it's this image of kind of order. And uh, this woman looks very proud of how orderly this, you know, this system of, of running people through a cage, essentially processing them is running. And, and so I just think about this as like Angel Island represents this, you know, the kind of final chapter in creating this bureaucracy of exclusion. And this picture so neatly encapsulates what that what that looked like. She's looking right at the camera and she appears to be smiling. Yes, she's smiling. She's she's happy about this. And it's it's a phenomenal picture. We'll have it on the website. The photographer is is unknown. That's right. And finally, finally, where should or might scholars pick up from here? As I think I noted in the introduction, this show of yours is really the first on this subject of which I'm aware. And there isn't a book. There isn't a book on this subject, which is flabbergasting to me. True. I think a really good book to read is Anthony Lee's Picturing Chinatown. He did a great job. It's it's um, maybe 10 years old, 10 years or more old, but he did a great job. And I think that's a great place to start. There have been other, a lot of other scholarship on different aspects that I've touched on here, both in the hist- on the history side and on the art history side. I hope other people do work in this vein. There's There are many other collections that are much larger than ours, the Bancroft Library. Society of California Pioneers. Society of California Pioneers. That, uh, you know, this could this could be a much bigger, broader show if, if somebody is able to do it. And maybe a book. <laughs> Aaron Garcia, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.